0: Hi, I'm Megan Francis. And I'm Dave Kroc. And this is the LifeWork Podcast. In this show, we'll explore what it really takes to build a business while designing a life that matters. If you've got great ideas, but feel like your efforts at creating or marketing products aren't getting you the results you want, you need to listen to today's interview with Tara Gentilly. As a business strategist and creator of Quiet Power Strategy, Tara specializes in helping entrepreneurs tap into their unique strengths to create thriving businesses that feel authentic and deliver real value. In episode 13 of LifeWork, Tara and I discuss everything from creating a content strategy that sells to turning your business into a cash machine. Listen to find out how to create a cohesive strategy that helps you get more results without working harder on this episode of LifeWork. Hey, Tara, thanks so much for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I, as I said in the intro, I have been following your work for some time now, and I, I think the first thing that really um, attracted me to your, your content and your, your sort of whole online presence was this idea of quiet power. So I think that's a really good place to start. Can you describe your quiet power strategy um, to listeners, what that actually means?
1: Sure. Um, And I think the first thing to say about that is that when I say quiet, I don't or I don't mean shy Mm. or, um, you know, playing small or even necessarily introverted, um, although I am that. (laughs) Um, to me, quiet power is those things about certain people or about certain brands that make them irresistible, that make them unique, that make them really stand out, even when the market is overwhelming or crowded, and. What quiet power strategy really is, is not only understanding what those bits and pieces are about you, your values, your philosophy, just your general attitude, the way you carry yourself, the way your brand relates to other people. Uh, But it's not so it's not just understanding it, but it's really about utilizing it in every aspect of your business. So not just your brand, but your products your marketing, your content, uh, your your internal communications, the way you build your team, and really using those things to guide the trajectory of your business across the board so that everything you do helps you stand out in the marketplace more, so that you don't have to shout, so that you don't have to be a part of the noise, and so that you don't have to do all the, the things that you know, businessy wise that, you know, (laughs) you don't want to do all those things. Like, you know, people say, I don't want to be salesy. I don't want to be. You know, marketing is icky. Like, I don't believe that. I believe that when, you know, you know what your quiet power is and you use that as a strategy for guiding your business, all of those things can feel authentic. They can feel fun uh, and they can feel really powerful, both for you and for your audience.
0: So, I I know that I've um, read some of your blog posts before where you've talked about, um, you know, the idea that people want to buy. Everybody wants to buy things and we're, we're set up to do that actually. So talk a little bit about that. Like this, this idea that we are so afraid of selling, but really, uh, that is what people expect.
1: So maybe turning that on its head a little bit. Yeah, so I love to buy things. I mean, I am a a consumer. Consumer, you know, I I love to buy things, and I think almost across the board, people love to buy things too. Um, You know, and I don't think it's just a product of our, you know, sure, our hyper consumerist society. I think it's that you know we like. Um, purchasing things, the things that we purchase, you know, they say something about who we are. Right. And I think it's great to be mindful about that. And I think it's great to use your values to guide your buying decisions. But at the end of the day, acquiring something new, uh, especially if it's meaningful to you, is a lot of fun. And so we love to buy things. What we don't like is to be sold to. And as marketers and salespeople and entrepreneurs, that's the key distinction to keep in mind is that people like to buy, but they don't like to be sold to. And so if we can make the process of selling uh, instead of it being about, you know, converting somebody Mm -hmm. or convincing somebody to buy, if we can present it more as the right opportunity for them at the right time for the right reasons, then we can be, you know, there's a it doesn't have to be that kind of icky like I'm going to get you to do this kind of <laughs> kind of tactic. Um, I'm actually reading um the a, a book right now all about persuasion and um you know there it's some of the tactics from this book have certainly been used to create those feelings of um uh you know, those, those, those feelings of, well, I, I need to buy this, but I don't know why. Right. Um, And that's not at all what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is as salespeople and marketers uh, simply presenting your work in a way that really makes it look like a great opportunity to buy instead of something that you have to do for weird or unnatural (laughs)
0: reasons. (laughs) Well, and laying the path out. So it's not like I'm compelled to buy this thing, but I don't know why, but a very clear, like, oh, I know exactly why I need this
1: and therefore, you know, it's the right move, you know? Exactly, exactly. Brian Clark talks about content marketing as being a process of educating your buyers um, and teaching them what they need to learn in the process towards buying, right? So it's not just putting out valuable content, although that's important, but it's really about thinking, what questions do I need to answer for someone to put them in the best position to buy? Um, And I think if you can think of uh, your marketing and your sales is really being empowering to people, mm-hmm. um, giving them the tools that they need to make a really good decision for them, then that to me is a, like, that's a really fun way to approach sales. And it's not just empowering for the customer, but it's empowering for us as marketers as well, because we don't have to worry about convincing or converting people that we d- that don't want to buy. All we need to do is create the right circumstances for the right people to buy.
0: So there's an emotional component to this as well, I I think. Like when someone connects with you as a person or you as a brand, um, that job becomes that much easier. And I'm wondering, how do you sort of strategically make that happen, an emotional response? You know, it's like, it feels like some kind of magic or mysticism, and it's not. There's a strategy behind it. But I'd love to hear you break that down a little bit.
1: Sure. So. Um. There's always an emotional component involved, right? There's an emotional component involved with everything that we yes. do because we don't do things that we're not motivated or inspired or driven to do for one reason or another. And so one of the things that we need to do as salespeople and marketers is actually tap into the existing emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think people really go wrong is that they try and kind of layer in emotions that aren't actually there. All of all of our situations, our daily lives are already, you know, the emotion there is already palpable. If you can tap into that, if you can recognize it and tap into it, uh, then you don't actually have a whole lot of work to do. And again, you're not going to be putting yourself in the position of feeling like you need to convince or convert somebody um, Mm -hmm. to buy. All you need to do is kind of peel back that surface, layer and show them what's already there. So one of the ways that I coach clients to do this is by listening and observation. And instead of just thinking about their own product or their own idea, because gosh, you know, we love our own product <laughs> yeah. and we love our own <laughs> ideas and we can be, they can really kind of be blinders to yes. us instead of, Only focusing on that instead, really opening up your mind, opening up your eyes and your ears and listening for what people are actually saying about the problems that they face or the frustrations that they have or the goals or the desires that they have. And simply by reflecting that back to them in the language that you use to talk about this opportunity that they have to buy. Um, that's gonna tap into that emotion better than anything else you could possibly do. You don't have to be a brilliant and creative copywriter to make this happen. All you have to do is kind of reflect back to people um, what they're already experiencing, what the what the truth of their experience is. Sometimes that means talking about negative emotions, which I know a lot of people don't like to do. Mm. Um, but if you ignore those negative emotions, uh, you are, in effect, not acknowledging the actual situation of your customers, which, you know, when when. I I don't know how you feel when you're not acknowledged, when you're upset or frustrated, but I don't like it. (laughs) Right, right. And so it's it's no different for us as marketers. We need to acknowledge negative feelings before we can talk about positive feelings, or we need to talk about them um, in tandem. You can't do just one or the other, uh, even though I know a lot of people out there would love to just talk about the happy things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have to talk about the happy things too. You have to point to people's goals. You have to kind of tap into their innate desires. Um, but you want to acknowledge both sides of those things and you want to do it uh, in their language in a way that feels really familiar to them. To me, that's the easiest way to tap into that emotional experience uh, leading up to a purchase and in the purchase itself. So you can do that on your sales page. You can do that in a product description. You can do it with great photography or a great video. And of course, you can do it with all the content that you create leading up to that as well. So be that a podcast episode or a blog post, or even just an email or a Facebook update, you, you want to be constantly tapping into what you observe in the market to just reflect back to people the emotion that they're already feeling so that they feel acknowledged and understood and heard.
0: You know, I think that there is a real, um, I'm going to use the word problem because for me, it was a problem for years <clears throat> among creative people where they want to they, like what you've been saying, kind of create too much work for themselves because they really want to be original and have original ideas and original thoughts and original products and services and offerings. And I remember I was um, a mom blogger for years, and it would make me crazy because I would spend all this time trying to come up with some really original idea, and then I would see people who basically said the most obvious things (laughs) to me were the ones who got the most response. And I I think you're so right that people really – they want to have what they already know to be true or feel reflected back to them, and that is – sometimes just way more uh, palatable, or they can actually wrap their brains around that more than someone trying to come up with something completely new and original. And really, there aren't that many original things anyway. So
1: yeah, no, and you, ha- you have to make it a process, right? right. Like you, ha- it's kind of cliche, but I'm going to say it anyhow, you have to be people where they're at. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, you can come at something with a brand new original idea and that's great. But if they don't understand how that original idea fits into where they are right now, which is what happens 99.9% of the time, right. Um, it's not going to land and they're not going to pay attention to it. And that's why it's so hard to bring a truly original product to market. Um, You know, when Steve Jobs brought out the, the iPod, it was not an original idea. And really nothing about it was original except the connection that he made to something that people already understood, which is you know, the vast amount of space that it took to right. carry a thousand songs, right? How many how many CDs is a thousand songs? A hundred? <laughs> yeah. Where are you gonna put a hundred CDs in your car? Although I know back in the nineties we were doing it. <laughs> well, we had remember we had
0: those little things that went in your trunk and like you'd put all the CDs yep. in it and then you'd have to get out and open the trunk. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> we had books and I had the visor yeah. thing. I had multiple of the visor yep, things. Yep, yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But anyhow, so he took that frustration and simply put it in a little white box that was basically just like what everybody else was selling at the time. What product caught on? The iPod. We don't even talk about the other no. the other things, and that's why original ideas are, while they're wonderful, um, they're often just sort of lost out no man's land. And so it's not about kind of repeating what's already out there, um, or you know regurgitating what someone else has created, but it is about finding connections between original ideas or you know novel ideas and what people are. Already familiar with. That's the real key to marketing and to sales and even to just having your brand understood out there in the wild as well. So
0: let break this down for me a little bit if you don't mind. Um, if you're working with as a strategist with a business and they've got a great idea um, and, and you've kind of vetted the idea and you think it's you know ready for market and that kind of thing, how do you Walk do you walk them backward to the beginning of educating? And I guess I'm talking about the content piece, the reaching out to the audience piece. Do you really do you start at the end and then go, how do we get, you know, the buyer to that place and then work backward and decide what's path you have to lay out for them? And how does that work? Absolutely. I work
1: backwards in just about everything. Um, In fact, right now I am literally working on a book called Lead Yourself Backwards. That's awesome. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So um, reverse engineering is the name of the game. Um, The one thing that I think you have to do first is um, come up with what I call your virtual focus group. And this is sort of a twist on the old ideal client or avatar profile idea. My issue with profiling or even coming up with a a fake ideal client is that we tend to make generalizations when we do this. We try and take a whole bunch of people we've worked with or that we like or that we'd like to sell to, and we kind of create a weird amalgamation of them. Mm -hmm. We make a lot of guesses, generalizations, and we miss the mark on half of it. But If you do basically the same thing, but instead of trying to create something, you actually look at what's in front of you. So, you know, your three, four or five absolute most favorite customers or clients. And if you've never had a business before, if you've not done this before, you can look for close fits with, you know, friends or family, um, you know, old colleagues, acquaintances that you've met along the way, people that you think fit the description because it's a process. Um, You start with those three, four or five. I best clients that you've had or customers that you've had and you examine them as people and individuals. And um, I like to ask sort of what are they doing right now about this problem or how are they trying to solve this problem? Um, what are they thinking about it? What are they saying about it to their friends and family? Um, what And how do they feel about it? What kind of emotions come up around this problem or goal that you want to help people with? And we kind of lay all of that out so that we've got a, a lot of sort of starting point information, basically. And then um, I tie that to what I call a big idea or what a lot of people call the big idea, which is sort of the it's sort of the the, the main core message behind uh, the launch that you're going to do or the the campaign that you're going to embark on. And this big idea comes from the intersection of what's important to you about your product and what's important, uh, right now to those, um, perfect customers for you. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of what's top of mind to them and what you have to offer to that situation. And the big idea comes out of that. Um, so, you know, just as a, for instance, for me, one of the big ideas that I use a lot is that there's no magic formula for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, 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 You know, that comes from me having a system of people for people to kind of walk themselves through step by step so that they can lead their own businesses instead of always having to rely on somebody's new magic formula (laughs) And, and also... um, observed behavior, which is people jumping from magic formula to magic formula to magic formula. And so I know that looking for that last piece of information, that that one right way to do things, that's top of mind for my people. Mm. And I also know that that doesn't exist and that there's a better way. And so I combine those two things and I come up with there's no magic formula. Um, Sometimes that appears directly in my copy sometimes it doesn't but it becomes a theme for the whole campaign so i know that's where i'm headed that's the end that's where i'm going to make my pitch so i'm going to say you know what there is no magic formula here's what you can do instead and here's how i can help mm-hmm. and then yeah. from there i work people backwards so um right before you ask for um right before you make that pitch and ask for the sale uh, what I find really helpful is to give people a particular result, help them solve some problem, and the smaller the better, really. Right. Not from a not from a kind of reciprocity standpoint, but from a um, from a just it, it's tangible. It's right. something you can get your head around, right? And so we start small with a result, and then from there we work backwards again. Uh, and we look for, we, we create some analysis, like what's really going on in this situation. Tell me, give me a case study, tell me your story, give me a client, uh, you know, give me a hypothetical story, just analyze what's really going on for your customers and really show off your expertise before that, then I look at a goal because people want to know what they're really aiming for. They may have some goal in mind. What I find is that my clients generally have a more concrete and often better goal. in mind, yeah. And so I like them to really paint that picture and also kind of tie that back into the theme, the big idea. And then at the, the very starting point of this campaign is gr- getting something that's going to really challenge them, challenge a misconception, bust an assumption that they have, uh, and really grab their attention. And so that's kind of the theme of the first piece of content that I would put out in a campaign. So then from start to finish, it's, uh, grabbing their attention by busting a misconception or assumption expanding their vision so that uh, they know exactly what their goal is and they feel they kind of feel the momentum of where you're starting to take them. Uh, part three is looking uh, creating some analysis, going deep into a case study or your sto- story, and really showing what's going on and how your expertise and how your perspective can change things for people. And then finally giving them a really concrete result and an example of exactly what you were talking about in one of those case studies or that analysis. And then finally, you can bring everything back to that core idea and make your pitch. Okay.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's, it's really good to hear it all broken down. And I've, you know, I've definitely, like I said, I've been watching your, your emails and they're very, it's very effective. And sometimes, excuse me, sometimes, um, you know, there's certain, I'm sure you sign up for a bunch of emails and then then unsubscribe if you're like me. (laughs) And then there's sometimes there's one that's just that standout. And every now and then you're like, why do I open this one and not the other ones? And why do I actually read them all the way through to the end? And then why do I click that link? And it's, It's cool to hear it kind of broken out that way. Um, That's very strategic. Um, So in one of those emails, one time you said that a business should be a cash machine. And I would love to hear you because that sounds like bringing all the elements together. Um, So can you just describe what that looks like and how it's different from what a lot of business
1: owners might be doing? Yes. I would love to talk about that. So (laughs) really what I'm talking about with your business should be a cash machine is akin to this idea of the business model, but people generally don't understand business models. Um, and that's because there's a lot of very, um, Uh, almost esoteric kind of thinking around how this is actually constructed. There's a great book called Business Model Generation if people actually want to get into that and finally understand what a business model actually means. Uh, At the core, a business model is how you create, deliver, and exchange value, Um, And there is no, you know, there's no. You mentioned you were a mom blogger before. There is no mom blogger business model. No, I haven't found one. (laughs) Right, there is no photographer business model. There is no even SaaS, you know, software as a service Mm. business model. Um, You have to generate a business model. That's why the book is called Business Model Generation. You have to (laughs) generate a business model that's specific to your business based on who your customers are and where you want to be in the market. So. That's really hard to explain quickly. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah, what we're more familiar with are machines. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, and just, you know, even simple machines, just a couple of gears, right? And what a machine really is, is a system of pieces that produce a particular result. And that's what your business should be. It should be a system of pieces that create a particular result for you as the business owner. That's producing cash. Yeah, <laughs> that's making money. It's putting wealth into your nest egg. That's what it's all about. Or, you know, if you're a public company, it's for your shareholders. But I think we're all talking to private entities here. Yes. So <laughs> um, it's for you. And that's good. That's OK. That's and that's actually that's what we want. Right. Um, it's sometimes we don't like to talk about it, but it's what we want. So. Um, What what a lot of people are doing with their businesses are, are they're kind of creating they're creating one piece of value over here and asking for an exchange, a transaction, a sale. Then they're creating another piece of value over there and then another one over this way and another one over that way. And they're all very separate. They don't have any connection to each other. They only have a loose connection to the brand. And there's lots of reasons we do this. One of the reasons is is that we don't plan uh, far enough and he- uh, far enough ahead, and so we are kind of constantly falling a little short of where we'd like to be, whether that's a growth curve or whether that's just you know paying your bills every month. Um, and so when we're f- constantly falling short, we tend to close that with stop gaps, and so these different offers become different stop gaps. And that is not a system. It's not a machine. Mm. Uh, Another reason we do it is because we follow the very good advice that is, you know, if your people are asking for something, if they have a particular problem, you should fix that problem. You should create something to help them. Well, that's great, but it also has to fit into your machine or what you're going to end up with is 20 different offers, 20 different (laughs) products or services that mean nothing to each other and nothing to your customers. They don't know where to go and they don't buy out of analysis paralysis and overwhelm. Um, and so those are kind of the two big problems and, and sort of what what it generally looks like, especially like with freelancers mm. and, and solo entrepreneurs and, um, you know, people who haven't kind of gotten to that planning stage yet. Yeah. And so what we do with clients is we actually have them lay out all of the different pieces that they want to create in terms of function first. And what I mean by function first is we need to know what it's doing in that system mm. and we need to know how it's creating a result for our customers. And those results and what those those pieces are doing, both for us and for our customers, need to work together. We need to be able to say, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do that. Right. Yeah. And the more we can string those things together, the more we can create exponential value in our businesses as they move forward. What it also means is that then when you go to create a piece of content, you write a new blog post, you do a new podcast episode, you highlight one particular piece of that machine, you can actually create results throughout the entire machine. Right. Because mm. Somebody might want to buy that one gear that you were talking about that day, but somebody else is intrigued by that gear, but they go looking for something else, right? Or they f- figure out that they're on a different part of the journey with you. And so they discover a new product or they, they start paying attention in a different way and they, they realize that you know they're not r- quite ready for that product yet, so they buy something earlier on in your journey, and there's, you know, there's lots of different ways to approach it, but that's that's kind of how we do it. Um, so yeah, when your business is a cash machine, everything you do adds exponentially to the bottom line because that's yeah. the other thing about machines, right? Is they help us do more work than we could on our own. And what most of us are doing is just it's just the work that we can do and our businesses yeah. are working for us. Um, and so that, that's really, I, I don't know if I explained that. Yeah, well you enough. did. I, uh, <laughs> I actually want to address two other obstacles. Like,
0: cause I've been very guilty of just kind of creating, 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 and not having a lot of cohesion, um, between the things I've created in the past, definitely. And I think there was another two kind of obstacles that maybe get in the way of a lot of people that were in that same kind of position. And one is, um, they kind of want to spread the risk around or spread the investment around a little bit, and it's kind of a back. It's it's wrong thinking, but there's this kind of this idea that that's how you diversify. Like you have a lot of crap going on at once. <laughs> yeah. And you're yeah. trying to reach 8 million audiences at once because you don't know which one's going to stick. And I, I, I've, I want you to address that in a second. But the other one, I think, is we don't always naturally see, especially if we're people who are sort of Renaissance-type women or men, and we have a lot of interests and we, bring, we feel like we bring a lot to the table, we don't see the connections between the things that we bring or the even the connections between the audiences that there could be. So I'm thinking of someone who, say, is like a, a pastry chef who also, I don't know, has a podcast about pastry chef and they, they're both creating the pastries and you know they have this podcast. I think a lot of times that person wouldn't be able to see how the person listening might also be the person buying their stuff. And I, you know what I mean? So they're trying to reach two completely different audiences when it sounds like what you're saying is they could actually find a way to bring those things together and have everything they create or do be helping the entire business, which is just one big thing. So. Yeah. <laughs> OK.
1: Yeah. I don't know so, if I said uh, that right, but <laughs> I think so. And I, I think I you know what you mean. And I totally agree. Um, there are way too many people trying to do to, way too many different things right. out there. And I agree that it's uh, largely about kind of spreading out that risk and and waiting to see what really sticks. Uh, and the problem with that is that when we're co- constantly creating, we don't ever give what we're creating enough time to actually take hold. Um, so for instance, uh, I know everyone out there wants to, you know, not everyone, but a lot of people out there want to kind of, uh, emulate those giant launches that, that peep thought leaders, uh, kind of in the online marketing space do right. Um, what they don't realize is there's, there's a lot of work that goes into, a launch like that or a product like that. Um, and you know, a segment of a business like that. And those people were working on those products or programs for years before it actually got traction like that. It doesn't just happen overnight. For instance, uh, with my main program, it took me three years of developing, um, the program, developing the audience, developing the offer, um, kind of, you know, kind of just navigating through my marketplace um, with small launches, small kind of internal launches before I was able to produce my first six figure launch. And if I would have thought, oh, you know, this is great. I could sell this to 15 people and it makes me um, $20,000, which I understand a lot of people would like to be able to do, but still like in the scheme of things, that's what, not where I wanted to go. It's like, oh, okay. That's, that's not good enough. I'm, I'm going to try something else. I would have never like, if I would have just kept doing that over and over again, yes. I would have never been able to create a six figure launch later on. And so, um, yeah, you, it, kind of sticking with some, discovering or trying something and sticking with it for a while is so important. Um I, you know, just as sort of like a baseline for this, I advise people to go through at least three campaigns with a particular product or service before they decide that's not working. Um, because what what happens is they do one, the early adopters buy it and that's great. And so they feel good about it. They do a second one. Nobody buys it and they think, oh, this I just wasted my life and I guess I need to try something new. But what they don't realize is that in that third launch, often this whole new crop of customers Mm. come out Mm -hmm. um, and you can find traction for something that you might've otherwise thrown in the garbage. Um, And then kind of circling back to the, (laughs) the, your pastry chef example and you know, (laughs) coming up with multiple, multiple audiences um, as you're building your business. So I actually think this is a really big problem. And um, you know, the pastry chef example, I could I could make that one work. Um, but what right. I see even more often is people actually trying to be different things to different people and selling something different to all of those different audiences and wondering why they never get traction, why they never can get uh, you know, some momentum under their belt. Um and You know, I know that we do it because we have a lot of different things that we're interested in. I mean, I'm interested in all sorts of things. Um, You know, during the day, I get to be, you know, I get to run a a business training company in the evenings. What I like to do is go drink beer. And I like to (laughs) start a business about beer. Absolutely. I think about it on an almost daily basis. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't do it. I don't do it because, and I've, I've tried and and by tried, I mean, I've set up numerous blogs that I've never posted on, but, um, um, you know, I don't do it because what would I be, I would only be taking time away from the thing that is actually working. And again, I realize that, you know, people could listen to that and say, Oh, well, Tara, that's great for you because what you do is actually working and what I do, it's not working yet. Or, you know, maybe I'm, I'm getting there, but it's not paying the bills and I need something else. I think almost everyone, and I won't say this across the board, but almost everyone would be better served putting that time and energy that they choose to go start something new for somebody else in a different field and focusing on that first thing that they tried and giving it a good six, 12, 18, 24 months before they decide that they need to move on to something different. Um, That's not to say that you can't very quickly uh, figure out whether you're on the right path or not. But I think once you're on the path, once you've, you've decided that this is viable in one way or another, you owe it to yourself to stick to that path. Uh, And not divert your energy or attention elsewhere to things that are not going to directly benefit the bottom line of that first venture.
0: Well, and and we've actually discussed in a couple recent episodes where we've talked about things like, you know, your business versus your passion and should you follow your passion and all that part of what you're sticking it out and and building that traction allows you to do is drink beer in the (laughs) evenings. So, you know, it subsidizes it for you in a way. Um, and maybe writing about blogging about drinking beer, you might not, actually enjoy that much. You might find, no, I'd rather just drink it. (laughs) So Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Yes. In defense of hobbies, right? I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Um, It it feels like in many ways in this kind of entrepreneurial community that we have, that hobbies are going extinct, that we don't have things we just do because we love them. Um, And I don't want to live in that world. Yeah, <laughs> I really like that, um, you know, I have friends and clients who have very successful businesses uh, and then have these kind of weird things that they do in their spare time. And I say weird out of love and also my <laughs> own experience, because yeah. like what I would like to do this weekend is go to a Star Trek convention. So, yeah. you know... <laughs> it's, where there's beer, that would be even right. a craft beer Star Trek convention. Just don't that blog about be, it. Just yeah, don't try no. to
0: start the Star Trek lovers, beer lovers blog or something. No, yeah. I won't. I
1: promise. <laughs> Yeah, that's And funny. if I do, I will definitely not try and monetize it. It would <laughs> exactly. just be for me. It would <laughs> be
0: for you only. Yeah. Oh, that's funny.
1: Well, that's a really great... I, I love that we kind of wrapped
0: up that little part of the conversation with hobbies because we've been focusing on that a lot lately. And I just think that you're so right. There's just this idea that you must monetize absolutely everything you do or find the opportunity, the business opportunity there if you're in this entrepreneurial circles. And Sometimes it's enough just to love something, and it takes the pressure off. It takes some of the, you know, if I had to make a, like I do musical theater, if I had to make a business out of doing musical, well, first of all, I'd be broke because I'm not that good. But, you know, if I had to make a business out of that, then some little part of it would be different, and that's not what I'm in it for, you know? So there's there's room for both, Right absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, I want to kind of wrap up by talking about your approach to growth and I know um, I did a, a interview with you for the quiet revolution website last year where you kind of got into this but um, there's this idea you know that you have a business and you have to build it and a lot of times we think that means scale um, and so what we assume is that it means like more people the more people the better like the more people we can reach the bigger the audience that we can get to um, the more more successful will ultimately be, and that model does not work for me, and I find that it doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, it's, it's, you know, it feels very nebulous. It feels impersonal, and so you've got, a, you know, you have an approach you talk about where you're really focusing on depth instead of breadth. And I would love for you to, you know, talk about that a little bit and how that actually works for you, and and how it's
1: possible to grow without scaling. Yeah, absolutely. I love this conversation because. It is just—it's so much less expensive to, to grow <laughs> yes. deep, um, and also I think it can be—it is so much more rewarding in a lot of different ways. And you know, I want to say that I'm all about growing in terms of scale as well, um, and it's—it's it's a goal that I have for my mm-hmm. business. And at the same time, depth is the number one value um, that I have for our business. Um, and it's the number one value that most of my clients do as well. And so they they kind of fall into this, this, this group where I'm sure many of your listeners fall into as well, which is that, yes, we want people to be engaging with our ideas. And we'd love for that to be hordes of people engaging right. with our ideas. But when it comes to the people that we work with, when it comes to the people who are who are paying our bills uh, and who are helping our business grow, we want to help them not just at a surface level, but as deeply and completely as possible. Uh, and I I this opportunity, um, I think, is just phenomenal um, in in today's marketplace, and I think that you know, for us as people, it is phenomenal. I just I love it. Um, and actually, another person, another resource, and it might be another great guest for your podcast, um, is Charlie Gilkey. Um, and Charlie Gilkey opened up um, the Quiet Power Strategy Summit that we did uh, a couple of. Uh, a month ago now, um, a little over a month ago. I can't believe that. Um, with, by talking about, um, you know, the number of people that you can heat around a fire okay. <laughs> and, and thinking about how, like, if you put a thousand people around a fire, like, sure. Some of the people at the front, maybe in the middle are going to feel some warmth, but really not a lot of people are getting a lot out of this fire that you've built. But instead, if you build a fire and you sit close to it and there's a small group there, they can truly get warm and feel comfortable and develop relationships and really experience it for all that it has to offer. And that's a much more valuable experience for those people. Yeah. Um, and I loved that imagery and I loved what it, what it said kind of about our businesses as well is that we basically put the same amount of energy into building that fire. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the issue uh, becomes is that then when we try and gather more people around the fire, we're putting tons and tons of energy into getting people not so warm, <laughs> <laughs> whereas yeah. you, you could just put energy into that small group of people and, um, and kind of over time uh, have them help you create the value that you need to make your business sustainable. And not even just sustainable, but to truly grow and become a, a wealth center for you. Um, so let me talk about what this specifically means because it's, it perfectly ties into the cash machine idea. Um, and so I meant, I've talked about the business model or the cash machine. I've talked about the virtual focus group, but the piece that I have left out to this point, that's directly relative to this is what I call the customer journey. It's a little bit different than, than the buyer's journey <laughs> that's, yeah. that you may be associated with, because to me, I'm looking at how does your customer evolve and change over time? Not Not just how are they moving through your offers or how are they moving through the process of becoming going from aware to being an advocate for your business, but really what are the changes that they're going to experience in relationship to you and your business? What new questions are they going to ask? What new goals are they going to uncover? What new frustrations are they going to come up with? And the more of those things that we can help people solve or, you know, questions that we can answer over time, then the more value we are creating for those people and the more value they'll be willing to exchange with us. And so these, the, all of those different touch points on that journey become the different offers in your business model, and they become the way that you you create or attract loyal customers over time can help you grow in terms of revenue and profit and sustainability, but without going wide and only helping people solve one particular problem. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and what, you know, I'm sure Charlie probably went into this, but what I immediately thought of is after you, that those really warm people leave the fire, they think that felt really good. I'm going to start my own fire and I'm going to bring my friends to the fire. And then maybe I'm going to mention the fact that I had this great fire last week with Tara or whatever. So, yes. So you can have maybe the, maybe the, um, you know, the summary is you can have both, but if you start by focusing on depth, then the breadth becomes more valuable, easier. I mean, it just seems more seamless. I don't know, like, because then it's not just you doing all the work.
1: Yeah, that is the exact experience I have had in my business. And it's the experience that lots of my other clients have had as well. Um, you know, my business started very much, I'm going to serve uh, a number, you know, a small number of people in a one-on-one capacity. And there were things that I did that could scale, but the vast majority of my revenue was coming from you know, intimate, long-term work with clients, and the more that fire grew and warmed people up and got results, mm-hmm. then naturally the the wider my business got, and the bigger my reputation got, and the more credibility I had in the market, and that then allowed me to create other ways to scale. But even as we scale, we're focused on the depth of the experience and really recreating um, what I do one to one with a client in a one to many model. But yeah. the only way you can figure that you can't just you can't guess at that, right? Yeah. The only way you can figure that out is by actually doing that deep work first. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that you can't build a business to scale right out of the gate. But if if you have a value for depth and transformation and um and, and intimacy in your business, you are not going to create scale right away. Um, you're going to create Uh, leverage and you're going to create growth by going deeper and longer term and more transformative with each one of your clients.
0: So when and and I can hear the the person who um it, who that speaks to saying that's great that's exactly the way I want to run my business. However, then how do I make a living? How do I make this business profitable? And I guess that's where smart pricing comes into play. But I feel like pricing is one of those things, and I know that's a big topic to get into in you know the few minutes we have left. But <laughs> um, I guess I would love to hear you know your nutshell approach to at some point it starts to feel like you're making stuff up because you know that there's people doing exactly what you do and they're doing it for nothing. And there's people doing what you do and they're doing it for a lot. And it's really difficult, especially at the beginning, to figure out where you fit. And I'm kind of wondering, like, how, how do you advise people to do that? Like, how do you how do you come up with pricing that works on this depth model before you've also got the width involved? Yeah,
1: so there's there's a lot. Uh, there is yeah. a lot that I have to say about this. But let me tell you, <laughs> let me give you a quick, quick rundown. Sure. Um. And pricing is a huge piece of this puzzle. And there's one other piece that I'll, I'll talk very quickly about too, but for pricing, um, it's all about results. Mm-hmm. So you have to be able to get a particular set of results that people are willing to pay for. Once you can get those results for people, you can charge whatever the market rate is yeah. um and the market rate is most likely higher than what you think it is and you, your confirmation bias is keeping you from seeing that so I'll just yeah, put right. that out there <laughs> okay. okay so people pay for results they don't pay for experience they don't pay for degrees they don't pay for blah 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 they pay for results right so you charge based on results and what the value of those results are and what the going rate for those results are in the market after a full analysis of both the top and the bottom of the market, and yeah. not just the bottom. Okay. Yeah. All right, okay. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> the other piece of the the pricing thing is that, um, and this is this is such a huge problem. People price their work based on what they need just to pay their bills. Yeah. And yeah. that is a huge. Problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you need to, your your pricing has to have a number of different things involved with it. First and foremost, you need to separate labor from profit. Um, so if you're a service-based business, those are your those are your main two pricing factors. You need to know how much your time is worth so that you can pay your bills based on maybe 20 hours of client work a week, client work a week, mm-hmm. but probably more like 10 to 15. Yeah. So that's your labor cost. And then you need to add a profit onto that. If you do not add profit onto your labor cost, you can never outsource anything. Yeah. <laughs> you can never grow. You can never take time off. You can never invest in new equipment or training or ideas. So it needs to have both labor and profit.
0: And you'll be that person that's running around making up a million services and products so that... They can pay the bills exactly <laughs> yeah exactly,
1: okay. exactly. yeah this leads back to all the problems we've exactly. already talked about <laughs> yeah. yeah and the, the other piece of this too is that you always have to know what's next So don't try and create a service package where you help someone do everything, because first of all, nobody wants to buy that or very, very few people want to buy that because very, very few people believe you can give them everything. So you have to start with something that's tangible, concrete, um, that's got a clear expectation, clear boundaries to it. That's your initial service package. If you're a service provider, which is that's just what I'm going to use, because that that makes the most sense for deep models. Um so you start, you start with that package and then you have to imagine where your client is going to be at at the end of that package. And you say, all right, what's next? What new questions do they have now? What new frustrations do they have now? What new problems have they uncovered? Because for all the results that you're going to create for somebody in creating results, you're going to create new problems. It's kind of, That's just how that works, (laughs) right? That is sort of the definition of growth, Um, but that's really good news for you because what that means, what you can do, is at the end of that service package, you know, maybe you give them a couple weeks, you give them a month, and you come back and you say, "Hey, uh, I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. Uh, I love the work. I've, I've, I've seen what you've been putting out there. I really love it, and I bet." you are running into this thing right now is that is that true they're going to say oh my gosh how did you you've read my mind that's mm-hmm. exactly true can you help me with that and you say absolutely i've got this this other package or i've got a retainer or you know we can work together in a strategy session or whatever it might be so you've got that what's next and that might feel a little um exploitative at first mm-hmm. but it's not it is about long term intimate deep service that's how it's done. Um, and that's what your customers want. They yes. want to buy from you over and over and over again, as long as you're creating the results that they want.
0: Well, otherwise it's kind of like a one night stand and uh, exactly. you're not helping them move on past no, that. There's this some- point. And there's
1: nothing deep about that.
0: There's nothing deep about one night stands. Right. (laughs) So I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So yeah, that's a really great, I mean, I know that that was kind of unfair to throw that question at you at the end. It's a big one, (laughs) but those are some great points that I think at least will help get people thinking about it in a different way because I totally agree we all under, not all, but often it is the tendency to undervalue or be afraid to ask for more or to just think that, you know, what we have to offer isn't. Really, that value is isn't really worth as much as we would like it to be, and I, I think that you're right. That's that that's a that's a bias we have that we need to get over <laughs> for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much, Tara. If, if what have you got going on right now? Like what's coming up for you, or something that you're um you know that you like people
1: to check out who are listening. Um, well, since we were just talking about pricing, I actually yeah. have a pricing course that people oh. can uh, grab, and it's all about sort of the, the nuances of it. So I do address the math. Okay. Um, and especially for, you know, service providers or people who feel like, well, gosh, there's just no formula for this pricing. I've got some math that you can actually look at. Ooh, nice. Um, and then I look at all of the nuanced parts of pricing as okay. well. So how price tells a story and, uh, you can get that by just going to quietpowerstrategy.com.
0: Okay, great. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So people can find that there. And obviously, um, it's quietpowerstrategy.com. The site people, should, I mean, I know you also have taragentilly.com. Um, as well, so I'll put all those. I'll put all that stuff in Perfect. there <laughs> in the show notes. Um, well, great, thank you so much. This has really been a very enlightening conversation. Um, I love this idea that you you can you can selling is really just about giving people what they need, and that really kind of sums it up, right? I mean, it's it's Absolutely. it's everyone everyone really needs. Um, if you if you create something, people need then they're going to feel good about buying it from you. And so there's no reason to feel skittish about that. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tara. It's been great having you on. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Life Work Podcast. Build your business and design your life with us every day, Monday through Friday. And find us at lifeworkpodcast.com.